Amen. This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. Now with this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 14. And as you make your way to the 14th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around an ancient man of faith. His name was Job. And as we learned back in the beginning of this book, Job was a man of integrity who feared God and shunned evil. Now, now with that being the case, Job ended up becoming a target of a fallen angel known as Satan. And after seeking permission from the Lord, Satan was permitted to put Job's faith to the test. And this included a series of attacks on his family, his flocks, as well as his physical health. Rather than realizing that this was nothing more than a work of the enemy, Job truly believed that the Lord was punishing him for sins that he was unaware of. And it's here in our text tonight where we find him. He's now crying out to the Lord as he struggled to understand why God was punishing him in this way. And sadly, Job didn't have the scriptures to rely on. He didn't have the scriptures which provide us now with a proper picture of God's perfect plan. I'll remind you that Job was here on the earth before Moses wrote the Torah. And what this means then is that Job didn't have a biblical framework for understanding the infinite mind of God. And not only that, but Job didn't have the biblical precepts you know, which are necessary for knowledge about, you know, anything from, you know, how to walk with the Lord to, you know, what's it going to be like in the afterlife. And so, you know, as we make our way through the text before us tonight, it's easy to, to realize and, and it's not hard to imagine that Job was a man who had ideas that didn't fully line up with the truth of God's word. And with that being the case, it's important for us to remember that the Bible is an accurate record of many things, including incorrect statements that are in conflict with the mind of God. Yeah, we find lots of conversations throughout the scriptures, people sharing their ideas and opinions that don't line up with the word of God. And uh, that being the case, we have to know the word of God in order to you know, pinpoint those statements that are incorrect in the word of God. And knowing that the, the, the concerns and the complaints that Job presented uh, here in this book contain both truth and error. Well, how do we, how do we know which is true and, and, and what's in error except by spending time understanding the word of God? We're actually going to take our time tonight to test the thoughts of Job and we're going to test the thoughts of Job not with our own opinions, not, not with the opinions of a popular vote. You know, no, we're going we're gonna to consider his concerns and, and his complaints we're going to test it with the, with the fullness of God's word so that we can weed out what is wrong and embrace what is right. And as we do, it's my hope that we'll learn how to test every teaching with the truth of God's word. Well, with this as the focus, let's consider the way that Job cried out to the Lord as he tried to make sense of his suffering. And with that, if you would look with me here at Job chapter 14, I want to begin reading there at verse 1 where Job declares, Man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Well, here in the first two verses of this chapter, we already find Job you know, crying out to the Lord as he sought relief from his pain and his suffering. And as we take some time to consider the content of this prayer, we must not fail to notice that Job was, in fact, completely correct when he declared, man is born of woman. 
That's what he says, very first verse. Man is born of woman. Seems fairly simple, right? Well, it's not. Now, I'm fairly certain that Job wasn't a man who earned a PhD in biology because had he earned a PhD in biology, then he couldn't have made such a simple statement. He would be like, I don't know what a man is, nor do I know what a woman is. That's, that would be more like the statement that he would make had he earned a PhD in biology. Uh, and, and yet, you know, having worked with his flocks, remember he had massive flocks and he had worked with these flocks for many years. And I'm guessing that Job was a man who began to realize that, oh, it's the, it's the female sheep that reproduce after its kind. That's strange. It's never the male. It's always the female cow that reproduces after its kind. It's never the male cow. Huh, that's weird. Now, with all that being the case, it only stands to reason that female humans, known as women, uh, are those who are able to reproduce other humans. And while this has been common knowledge up until about five minutes ago, you know, we now live in a day and an age when those who have been sufficiently indoctrinated uh, are no longer able to make sense of these simple truths that Job just you know, fully comprehended. As a result, you know, many in the progressive camp are no longer able to define the difference between a man and a woman. And what's even worse is that there are churches that are even beginning to embrace this nonsense. And yes, despite the fact that the word of God makes it perfectly clear. For example, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's verses 11 and 12. There Paul declares, man is not independent of woman, nor is a woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through a woman, but all things are from God. Now according to Paul here, the first woman, Eve, she came from a man as God created you know, Eve from the rib of, rib of Adam. Uh, but, but since then, you know, every person has come through a woman. That's what he says there in verse 12. Man also comes through woman. That's right. It's only biological women with a womb who are able to give birth to other human beings. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to maintain a biblical perspective regarding gender and reproduction and these sorts of topics. There's a lot of ideas floating around. Some people are no longer able to define what a woman is or what a man is or these sorts of things. And and it's sad to say that, you know, a lot of these people are engaging in propaganda and public schools and mainstream media continue to push this propaganda that biological women who identify as men can give birth and, and, and therefore trans men can also get pregnant. Christian, listen, the Bible's perfectly clear. Only women with wombs are able to reproduce. And while I realize that there are angry activists out there who think that I'm somehow denying the rights of trans men, listen, I'm not. I'm not denying anybody's rights. I'm certainly not calling for trans genocide or whatever that even means. I can't stop a trans man from getting pregnant and giving birth any more than they can stop me from pointing out that all trans men are really just women. Women struggling to understand their true identity in the Lord. Listen, a, a, a biological woman who begins to think that she's a man, I, you know, I can't explain the reason for that. I don't know if it's chemical. I, I don't know if it's abuse. I don't know if there's a mental disorder. I don't know if this is completely demonic. I, I, I can't really tell you. But what I do know is that biological women are created by God uh, according to his design, and they are women even if they think that they're men. 
would that be the case, we should be praying for those who have been blinded into believing that God somehow made a mistake in the womb. Because that's really what this boils down to. You know, I would say that most of the time somebody uh, is struggling with, with the, the reality of their identity. And rather than thinking there's something wrong happening in their mind, they think God must have done something wrong in the womb. Well, listen, I'm here to tell you, God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. If he gave you, you know, the, the, the physical features and functions of a woman, guess what? You're a woman, even if your brain tells you that you're something different. And if he gave you the f- physical features and functions of a man, you're a man, even if your brain tells you that you're something different. God didn't make a mistake. And when the progressives try to present us with their propaganda, I, I encourage you to remember that popular opinions don't make ideas true. And I, and I get the emotional appeal. Listen, what's, what's wrong with this? Why can't people just love who they love and be who they are and these sorts of things? Well, if it doesn't line up with the word of God, it's false. God is true. And when our ideas don't line up with the truth of God's word, then we're thinking wrong thoughts. And so if we really love those people, then we should encourage them to to believe what is true. The Bible is the standard of truth, and the Bible is perfectly clear that biological women alone are able to reproduce. Job was also correct when he compared our lives to a flower that quickly fades away. I've I've often been uh, called that, uh, a fading flower. But listen, you know, it's true that, that our life fades away quickly like a flower. And, and I see this, you know, every, every spring I go mountain biking, the flowers are out, they're beautiful. It's, it's just gorgeous here in central Texas when, when it's spring. And, and yet it's not long before all, all those flowers turn into briars and bristles and they get stuck in your socks and it's horrible. You know, and, and, and it just happens over the, over the course of a few months. And Job is saying, hey, that's what our life is like, a flower that quickly fades. Without debate, our life on earth is extremely short, and we don't really recognize that when we're young. But the older we get, the more years we have under our belt, the more we realize that the life that we have here on earth is like a vapor of smoke. With that being the case, I encourage you to realize that we have a limited amount of time to reach those who, are, who, who, we, who we love, you know. We have a limited amount of time to reach them with the love of Jesus Christ. Those who we know that are rejecting Jesus Christ, I encourage you to realize that, that we don't have all of this time to get around to eventually challenging them. Life is short, and it'll be over before you know it. And so we ought to spend as much time as possible reaching those that we love are still rejecting Jesus. And while I realize that the message of the cross is going to sound to them like foolishness, that's what the scriptures say. You know, Paul tells us that the, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And yet every Christian has been called to become fools for Christ so that some might get saved. That's right. We've been called to, to become fools, so to speak. Or, or to present this, this message that sounds like foolishness to people who will think we're foolish for believing in it. And, and, and to do this with no regard for our reputation. But to just, just say, yeah, I mean, if I'm going to be a fool, I'll, it'll, I'll be a fool for Christ. 
I like the way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's verses 20 and 21, where he asks, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Christian, listen, those of us who are still worried about sounding foolish or you know, being rejected for, for sounding silly, or listen, this Christian will probably never lead anyone to Jesus, and the reason why is because they're more concerned about their image than they are about conversions to Christ. And we just have to just go all in. We just have to stop worrying about whether people respect us or not, or whether they think we're ridiculous or not, or whether we think that they think you know that we're foolish or not. What does it matter? Why are we so concerned about how they view us? Isn't it just more important to present them with the truth of the gospel, even if they think we're fools for believing it? Please trust me when I tell you that life is too short to worry about our public image. So rather than wasting our lives as we try to cultivate the cool factor, whatever that is, let's instead become fools for Christ as we present people with the truth of his word. And whenever we find ourselves face-to-face with those who ridicule us for our faith in Jesus Christ, well, we can rest in the the assurance that there's nothing foolish about our faith in Jesus. They might think that we're fools, but listen, at the end of the day, when we stand before, before Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, We're not going to feel foolish then. And so why are we worried about it today? In order to further explain my point here, let's continue to consider the conflict that was occurring in the mind of Job. And I want to pick up our study of Job 14, beginning at verse 3, where Job asks, And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's asking the Lord why he seemed to be judging him and him alone. Job felt like he was being singled out and picked on by God and judged for no good reason at all. And we know that this was not the case because, remember, the Lord wasn't judging him. You know, the the attacks of the enemy were not the judgments of God. And it was Satan who was testing the sincerity of Job's faith. And it's sad to say that Job's perspective was skewed by the struggles of his sufferings. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to find him faltering in his faith. Notice again there in verse 4 where Job declares, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. In other words, Job here is asking, Who can bring purity out of an impure person? And then he answers his own question. No one. Job was beginning to believe that there is no one who's able to bring purity out out of an impure person. It's sad to say that there are people in the world today who are telling us the same basic thing. And and to make my case, just consider any 12-step program that's ever been created. The 12-step programs, the drug and alcohol addiction programs, are centered on this message, basically. They're, They're here to tell us that you're an addict, you'll always be an addict. Sorry. Now let's, let's figure out how to, how to live as an addict, right? 
And listen, this is the mentality that leads governments to provide syringes and crack pipes to those who are dwelling in the ever-growing homeless camps all across our country. You know, you know, all in the name of compassion. Let's, let's just get them the syringes and the crack pipes that they need because they're just always going to be addicts and you can't bring anything pure out of these impure people. So just prop them up and help them to survive as long as they can. Really? That's, that's the best we can do? These are the same people who want to provide our kids with condoms because, you know, there's no way they're not going to have sex. So we just got to, you know, provide them with the condoms they need. Yeah, they don't really believe that we can actually raise kids to value their own bodies in the way that God values their bodies. Rather than providing programs to reform career criminals, many correctional facilities just treat the criminals as hopeless convicts that can never change. So why pour anything into a program that will help them to you know, be more than what they are in jail? This all is just a skewed perspective that's found in the minds of those who don't really know how Jesus is able to turn impure people into pure people. And while I realize that Job was wrestling with this unbiblical belief about 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus... I want to assure you that the conclusion that he had was completely incorrect because I can assure you that Jesus is able to bring purity out of impure people. I like the way that the Apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 1. It's there where he declares, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's right, the Lord Jesus is able to bring purity out of an impure person. He's able to bring righteousness out of those who were living in sin. And while it's true that our fallen flesh is limited by the curse of of original sin, listen, those who trust in Jesus Christ have been purified by the blood of Jesus, and then he is able to use us in incredible ways to, to produce all manner of pure works by the power of his Holy Spirit. So who can bring purity out of the impure? Well, Jesus can. And that's what he does with every single person who will simply trust in him and walk by faith with him. Paul put it plainly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's verse 17 where he declares, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Incredible. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. As I look back to my punk rock years and as I look back to my drug addiction years and as I look back to all of that, I I can't even imagine how God took me from just the, the, the scraping of the bottom of the barrel to becoming the best pastor ever. I just, I don't, I don't know how he did that. <laughs> no, you know, I, I joke, but, but I'm serious too, you know. 
to, to think back, you know, when I was a youth and, and the way I lived my life, I would have never imagined that God could, could use me to serve him, especially as a pastor. And yet that's exactly what he did. And, that, and listen, he's got a plan for you too. No matter your background in sin, no matter how many times you've stumbled, the Lord Jesus Christ can bring purity out of impurity because that's what he does with those who trust in him. At the same time, it's also important for us to remember that the true test uh, of, of our relationship with God is in the rest that we find in our Redeemer. And in order to explain what I mean, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 14. I want to begin, uh, begin reading there at verse 5. Here Job writes, Since his days are determined... The number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. Now here in these verses we find Job. He's continuing to wrestle with some deterministic thoughts about God as he tries to understand why the Lord was punishing him though he had done his best to live in righteousness and you know, he's trying to grasp why God was pouring out this punishment, you know, and, and, and he starts to believe here that the only way to escape all of this, the only way to find rest from all of these religious obligations was to simply separate himself from the Lord. And, and so in verse 6, he says, look away from him that he may rest. He's effectively saying, hey, just separate yourself from me so that I can escape you know, all of the hard work of these religious obligations that are just killing me. Now, in one sense, Job is correct here. Listen, if your plan is to work your way to heaven, then righteousness is the requirement. And if righteousness is the requirement, then there's no rest for those who want to work their way to God been said that there's no rest for the wicked, but in fact, Ozzy Osbourne was wrong. There's no rest for the righteous or those who are trying to be righteous by their own good works. If your goal is to be righteous before God through your own good works, good luck. Because it is, you know, 600 plus laws that you must keep perfectly every day for the rest of your lives. There's no rest in that. There's no way to find rest in that. And I think that's what Job is thinking here. It's like, I woke up every morning, I gave the right sacrifices, I did the right thing all day long, I was doing as best as I could every day, and, and I'm, I'm still being punished, so just please get away from me because I, I, I need rest, I need to take a break from all of these religious works. Listen, if... If those who are trying to be righteous before God through good works can find no rest and, and there's only punishment for the sins that they commit, there's no hope. And listen, this is even true for those trying to keep the Sabbath law. You know, there are even those in the church who insist that they're Sabbatarians and, you know, that they keep the law by keeping the Sabbath. And, and listen, the Sabbath law requires a day of rest that is still impossible to keep. The minute a Sabbatarian turns on the lights in their kitchen to, to make some breakfast, they've broken the Sabbath law. Because it's against the Sabbath law to start a fire. So the people who tell you they're keeping the law because they're Sabbatarians and whatnot, just let them know. No, you, 
You're a Sabbath breaker. That's what you do every Saturday. You break the Sabbath. At the same time, I should remind you that the true Sabbath rest is simply given to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It's Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, those who want real rest, if you want real rest from the endless works of daily sacrifices and monthly feasts, you should simply seek the Sabbath rest that Jesus gives us freely. The true Sabbath rest can only be found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. That's what he did. Jesus fulfilled the law for us so that we can be saved, not by works of righteousness, but by faith in his works of righteousness. And when people try to place us back under the law, well, I encourage you, we ought to invite them to join us as we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and celebrate his resurrection every Sunday. Well, listen, not only was Job weary of working his way to heaven, but he was also struggling with hopelessness as he wondered about the afterlife. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our our study of Job chapter 14. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 7. Here he declares, For there is hope for a tree, if it is cut down, that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease, though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground. Yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Now here in these verses we find Job. He's describing the depression that he was feeling after considering the questions you know, that he had about the afterlife. And he's struggling to understand you know, what happens when man dies. And, and while he seems to still be wondering about the final outcome of those who are deceased... He's clearly leaning towards the idea that there is no resurrection from the dead. And in similar fashion, there are many in the world today who think that that death of, of man is just the end of existence. Some of these people are atheists, some are agnostics, others are religious people who don't believe in an afterlife. For example, consider the Sadducees. The Sadducees were religious leaders in Israel And they believed in God and yet didn't believe in the afterlife. You know, kind of like Ben Shapiro. uh, You know, he believes in God but doesn't really believe the afterlife is a Jewish belief. And, And in similar fashion, there are many Jews today, you know, who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Nor do they have hope in an eternal afterlife with God. And this seems to be what Job is struggling with here. And it's And with that being the case, you know, we ought to consider something that Paul, another Jew, said as he addressed the Christians in Corinth. 
And, and, and the reason why is because they were beginning to embrace the hopeless belief that there is no resurrection from the grave. With that, I want to look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here Paul declares, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Now here in these verses we find Paul helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that the question about the resurrection from the dead has already been settled. You might not know this, but it's true. The question about the resurrection from the dead has already been settled. And it was settled when our Savior Jesus rose up from the tomb on the third day. All questions about the resurrection were answered on that day. Is there a resurrection from the dead? Yes. Jesus Christ has settled the question. And now that he has, listen, those who trust in him can also have everlasting hope in knowing that he will raise us up from the grave as well. Now, in order to further grasp my point, let's continue to consider here the way that Job was questioning the resurrection from the grave. And if you would, let's pick up our study at verse 13. Here Job goes on to declare, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my iniquity. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's continuing to question the afterlife, and in his mind, he's looking forward to the change that death would bring, and he seems to, again, be wavering between there is life after the grave and maybe not. And so he's just wanting the change. He's so just, just consumed in his misery that he's just wanting death to bring change regardless of whether there's no existence at that point or eternal existence. And listen, who can blame him? Because remember, Job lost his family. He lost his flocks. He was suffering with physical health issues. And so he's just longing for change. He's longing for the suffering to end. And so he's looking forward to the grave. And as we consider his concerns about life and his questions about death and the afterlife, there should be no doubt in our minds that Job was allowing his emotions to rule over his thinking. He's allowing his emotions to rule over his thinking. And listen, the person who allows their emotions to rule their rational faculties, they end up allowing their feelings to control them rather than to follow after the truth of God's word. I've seen it happen Time and time again, Christians allow their emotions to lead them into many harmful decisions. Their emotions lead them into this decision, and then that doesn't fix it, and so their emotions lead them to that decision, and on and on it goes. And it's sad that this includes self-destructive decisions which 
can lead believers back into the bondage of sin. Some have even gone as far as suicidal thoughts and, and even suicidal actions, thinking that, well, life will just be better if I'm no longer alive. Well, that's not rational. That's just straight emotional. It's for this reason that Paul warned us about those who follow after their feelings. It's Philippians chapter 3 where he declares, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Christian, listen, there are those who are setting their minds on earthly things. They're, they're driven to and fro by all the earthly things that are happening, happening to them throughout the course of the day. And listen, it, it, it's easy to, to be there, right? It, you know, it's easy for us to get caught up into all the bad things that have happened to me today. And we go to work and bad things happen and then we bring that home and then, and then we bark at our spouse or, or yell at the kids or... And then we go back to work the next day and bad things happen again. Oh, surprise. And then we bring that back home and back and forth we go and we're just, you know, controlled by our emotional, our, our emotions. And when people, and especially believers, set their minds on earthly things, they start serving their belly, which is to say that they serve their gut feelings rather than Lord. Their gut feelings become their God. Now, how many of us here tonight could say, yep, that's what I do. I am a slave to my gut because I just follow after my feelings. And much like Job, you know, these are the people that allow the trials and the troubles of this world to control them and and then lead them down a dark path into depression that, that causes them to long for the grave. And if this sounds like your situation, then listen, it's time to follow in the footsteps of Paul. Listen, if anybody had a a difficult time here on this planet, it was Paul. You can lead, you know, go and read the the, the list of all the difficulties that he faced while he served the Lord, you know, but, you know, he was constantly being beaten and and, and imprisoned and and just the, the running list of all the difficulties that he faced serving our Savior. And yet he was always filled with joy. He was always you know, ready to, to take that next step in serving the Lord. He was always ready for the fight. He wasn't following his feelings. He was following his calling. And I encourage you to follow in the footsteps of Paul by learning how to endure the trials and the troubles that we face every day and to do this with a heart that is established in the faith. Listen, if we don't face our pain and suffering with a heart that's filled with faith in Jesus Christ, then we will continue to be enslaved by our emotions. And I'm sure you already know our emotions are a cruel slave driver. With all this in mind, I want to consider how our emotions will oftentimes fill our hearts with hopelessness. And if you would look with me there at Job chapter 14, let's pick up our study at verse 18. Here Job declares, but as a mountain falls and crumbles away, 
And as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones, and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him, and he passes on. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. But his flesh will be in pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. Wow. What a depressing way to end this chapter. And without debate, you know, there are, uh, these are the words of a man who has embraced his darkest and most depressing thoughts. We see him in the second half of this chapter kind of wavering between, you know, maybe there's an afterlife, maybe there's not, maybe it's going to get better, maybe it won't. But here in these final words, he's just ranting against God. Rather than viewing God as the giver of all good gifts and the creator of everlasting hope, Job was beginning to believe that the Lord is actively destroying the hope of man. And by that, what, what he's really saying is, God, you are destroying my hope. He not only saw God as the one who overpowers people and then disfigures them in death, but he had also come to the conclusion that God has purposed to pour out pain and suffering upon all people throughout the days of their life. And then they'll cease to exist after they pass from this plane of existence, and that's that. Their kids will come to honor them, but they won't know it. How sad is that? And, and listen, I'm happy to inform you that this is the end of the Bible study, so good night. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know that God's plan for, for us is so much better than this. Isn't it nice to know that God's plan is so much better than Job's deepest, darkest thoughts? And while it's true that, that Job had come to the conclusion that the Lord loves to destroy the hope of man, the biblical truth is that the Lord is the one who has provided us with everlasting hope. The Lord is the one who provides us with everlasting hope. As a matter of fact, it's in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, there Paul declares to them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Simply put, God the Father is the one who has provided us with a way to have eternal hope. And he's provided us with the hope of glory, which means the hope that we will be glorified in the resurrection. He provided us with this eternal hope by sending his only begotten son to pay the price for our transgressions so that we can be saved from the punishment that we deserve by faith in Jesus Christ. And so Christ in us is the hope of eternal glory. Isn't that incredible? Listen, if you're feeling hopeless tonight, if you find yourself in a hopeless situation, I encourage you, get your eyes off of the things of this earth and put them back on Jesus where your thoughts belong. And as we focus our faith on Jesus Christ, he will help us to remember that Christ in us is the hope of glory. <clears throat> now as we consider all the ways that the th thoughts of Job were 
at times correct and then incorrect and then a little off and then a little right. And, you know, he's just kind of bouncing around in, in his belief system. It's important for us to realize that as wrong as Job often was, we too can also be wrong when it comes to our opinions and beliefs. Do you believe that? And, and I'm not asking you to, to, you know, just casually nod your head, but do you really, really understand how wrong you can be? Do I really understand how wrong I can be? Do we really get it that we can actually deceive ourselves into unbiblical thinking all the while thinking that we're right with God? It is so easy for us to to deceive ourselves with incorrect thoughts. And whether we're talking about embracing popular opinions, you know, that that everybody says is right, or or personal feelings that we've decided to follow, regardless, it's crucial for every Christian to examine the ideas that we begin to incorporate into our worldview so that we can make sure that we're thinking true thoughts. That, that we're actually aligning our, our mind to what the Bible actually says. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's verses 21 and 22. There he declares, Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Listen, rather than embracing the popular opinions of the carnal culture in which we exist, instead of following after the hurt feelings that lead us further away from the Lord, I encourage you in closing, let's test all things with the truth of God's word. Let's examine our thoughts. Let's examine our motives. And let's examine them against the truth of God's word. And as we do, we can use the word of God as a litmus test for truth. And in this way, the Lord will help us to abstain from every form of evil as we then hold fast to what is good. Let's pray.